0: An epidemic may have laid Wanhua low 165 years ago, he says, but today's Taiwan is able to keep disease at bay and hold public events of this size without any fear. Perhaps the gods of old Wanhua are still looking out for us 165 years after lifting the last great plague. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week.
1: From the London underground to the Taipei metro, the people of our world are going places. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight.
2: Welcome to In The Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin, and today my guest is all the way in the Netherlands. Yes, such an honor to be calling Wei Yu Hong, who is a fashion designer, and he focuses on sustainability, as well as Asian culture and traditional handicraft. So let's meet, um, gosh, how should I call you? Want to call you Wei Yu? Uh, Yeah. First of all, um, I know that you've been in the Netherlands for uh, about, what, two years?
3: Uh, yeah, it's around like two and a half years.
2: Two and a half years. Why study fashion?
3: Uh, like I majored fashion design when I took my master's degree at Artist University of Art in the Netherlands. And also uh, my bachelor degree and at foreign catholic universities in Taiwan. So mm-hmm. I got like the full like fashion design like trainings. From very beginning till now,
2: did you grow up like really like design like art when you were young?
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a quite like different like childhood I mean compared to um like other people in Taiwan, like my parents like really give me like a lot of time and space to explore my interests, like uh, painting and also like performance arts. So I wasn't forced to like spend <laughs> all my time I mean in a crab school. Yeah. When I was a child, so I think like the, uh, the reason might be I was not raised in a big city, and uh, so there were were not like so much pressures on me.
2: So where where were you born in Taiwan?
3: I was born in um, Nantou. But I was raised in Taipei when I was young.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, Nanto is like right in the middle of Taiwan. Exactly. Oh, okay, so, um, and what uh, what were your parents doing? What's their occupation?
3: My father, like, worked in the cosmetics, like, industry.
2: Oh, interesting. So,
3: so it's also, like, part of the fashion design, I mean,
2: industry. Oh, but, so that's where the influence came from. Yeah, I think yes? it should no. be. <laughs> because
3: you know, like they also like do like lots of like um, like campaign shootings for like each seasons and also I mean like the cosmetic industry are uh, the industry which um like selling like uh, like beauties and also um like concept to um make us better. So yeah. I think there are a lot of like similarities between um fashion design and also the cosmetics.
2: Yeah. In fact, I mean and for I don't know of how how many years it's been, lately there's also a lot of promotion on men's beauty products.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, more and more people are care about um like their hairstyle, their skin, skins, like their
2: So while your dad was busy with cosmetics and the making of of it and everything, you on the side was more interested in the promotional ads, in the campaigns, in the way that he was promoting, you know, the beauty product industry and all that kind of stuff. So you were more interested in the visual, the artistic part. Of the cosmetic industry, right?
3: Like he really like opened like a lot of doors for me, <laughs> so oh. that's why I, I'm now. Okay, I, I mean working in the fashion, fashion. industry as well because, mm. like each season, like he will uh, he will go to other countries to uh, participate the the exhibitions to, um, like do the sales. Oh. So sometimes I will go. Um, go with him to like Bangkok Vietnam and also uh, because his uh, company is based in China so I also I mean go to like lots of cities in China so I think it's really broadened like lots of doors for me to uh, I mean, go go abroad to see like what's going on, and also like um to really experience. I mean, different cultures, I mean, in life and also in different ways. So that's the reason why I'm really interested in um like very cultural and very uh, traditional um like themes in our life and also in clothing.
2: Actually, your mother plays quite an important part. In your pursuit of fashion design, because you were saying that when you were younger, you watched your mom use tree bark. Yeah. Do you want to talk exactly. about that? I'm very curious. That is so fascinating.
3: <laughs> okay, I will just like briefly um, like introduce like this kind of like handcraft you first. Mm-hmm. Um, like officially, we call it tapa. So like tapa is the name of the bark clothes. So, handcraft is an Australian uh, handicraft to turn the tree bark into textile with like eco-friendly progress without any chemical like addicts, like beatings and also like washing by waters. Mm. So that is a whole progress. Uh, for me, like I saw like my mother uh, work with the tree bark when I was a child. So it's not only a cultural like heritage from the Austronesian communities. Or an eco-friendly material, but also something—I mean—deep bond with uh, like my memories from my family and also the whole communities. I mean, in Taiwan, we really don't have that kind of uh, very continuous—I mean—cultural footprints because of the uh, colonial uh, like history. But we do have like the crafts. I mean, our clothes, which establish like our identities. And the way to get together to um, make um, local global. So, a uh, very brief like introduction of the bark fabric.
2: Oh, bark yeah. fabric! But doesn't it mean that you cut down trees?
3: Not really. We don't need to like really cut uh, cut the tree. Oh. But what we what we did is uh, we peel like the tree bark from uh, the paper berries uh-huh. They use like the hammer to stretch um, the tree bark, because it's a natural like web structure. So we use the hammer to really stretch it to make it like thinners oh, uh, which so can, interesting. Wow, to like really turn turn it into um, a non like textile. Uh-huh. So that's what we what we did.
2: Oh I see. So because the the tree the bark will grow back, is that right?
3: So the paper berry will like recover it by itself. So oh, okay. uh, we can see as a very uh circular <laughs> like production.
2: No wonder. <laughs> so that's where the sustainability is.
3: In this kind of handcraft I think there are a few I mean levels of sustain sustainability. Mm-hmm. I mean because for me, sustainability is not only about the material, but it's also about like our cultures. Mm. So for the materials, uh, because there are no any like chemical chemical added, and also it's a very natural uh, like material, so it won't like hurt like our uh, planet. Mm-hmm. But for I mean the cultural cultural part. Personally, I believe it's a way for us to, like, connect with our history, I mean, with with our island.
2: You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. I'm curious, um, how does the bark fabric feel on our skin? Is it rough?
3: Okay, um, it really depends on... Uh, how you treat it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. I have to say that. <laughs> okay. Um,
3: if we just like touch, I mean, the tree bark is it, quite rough. Mm. So we only leave the inner layer. So it's, it's very uh, smooth. And, okay. uh, and also very, uh, so it's not that kind of like a rough. And also we use the hammer to like stretch the structure. So it become more like thinner. So, um, it's not that kind of uncomfortable, but it could be more uh, wearable. I mean, in our daily life, but mm, okay. uh, combined with um, like different kind of craft to turn it into a new thing. Mainly, we combine with the uh, embroideries.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: we attach the tree barks. I mean, on the fabric with the embroidery stitch and with like other kind of uh the materials like the sequins and also like bead, and also some uh, Swabovski-like diamonds to like decorate is, I mean, working as a designer, I think it's quite important to turn like this kind of traditional handcraft. Mm. into a new phase not only I mean keep it as a heritage I mean I won't say like the cultural heritage is not important but I have to turn it into a new phase to introduce this to the public again otherwise like we don't know like or we can like just imagine like how it could I mean goes into our, our lives so I mean right. if we don't have that kind of imaginations mm-hmm. We won't like get interested in this kind of handcraft again. Then we will lose it. I mean, in the coming future. So, I mean, working as a designer, I think it's quite important to to use our creativity to turn it into an into a new life. Uh, in our 2020 seasons, we uh-huh. combine it with uh, like the crochet, oh. the crochets and um, techniques. Uh, in Linelle and the Dutch crochets,
2: yeah, um, I was looking at your collection, and um it's all very um like very down to earth color collection, you know,' it's, it's all yeah. like part of nature, um a lot of um like a beige, very comfortable, like light brown color, you know, and and it's all. Very summary. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. Because mm. for me, I think I, I really want to let fashion, I mean, down to earth. Yeah. And I hope to let fashion, I mean, held in commons, held in our life. I think it's more uh, important because after working for a few years, I mean, in the fashion industry, I found there are more and more, I mean, abandoned materials and lots of like waste, lots of like that stock, not only in fashion industry, but also in the textile industry. Mm. But for me, I feel it's quite pity because all mm. of the creators, we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of effort to um, do the research, do the trial, then go to the final product. But, at the end, it seems like we still create like lot of ways and also some like desktop or lots mm-hmm. of like examples I mean in our studios. But I expect myself not only as a creator make something beautiful but also use my hand to solve the current problems mm. or solve the sur- problems in our surroundings, do some upcycling things or like the samples to give them the second life. But if I let it go to like really high fashion style, it will be out of fashion maybe after one year or after two years. So expect to make more like timeless style, but with something very dedicated I mean, details with um, the high quality textile in my design. So that is what I think is more important. There are two sources in our works. First, mm-hmm. for like the kimonos and the obvious of the of them are the secondhand hand, um, like garments. Because yeah. I have a friend like, who runs a kimono rental house in Kyoto. can remember maybe three or four years ago. Okay,
2: okay. Because <laughs>
3: one day we... We'll- when we okay. talk about, because I told him like, after few working for a few years, I found there are more and more samples, I mean, in my studio, but I didn't know like how I could work with them because I mean, I feel so, so guilty. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I spent a lot of, I mean, I spent lot of time and to create them, but nobody like really worried. I mean, after a few seasons yeah, and he say, also oh, have lots kind of problems. Because, you know, he runs a kimono rental house. so Sometimes maybe his clients, like, pull the kimonos. He can, like, recover it. But he also don't want to provide this kind of like stuff to uh, his clients. But he also don't want to throw it away. So it's become another problem for him. So in 2017, I think I got an uh, invitations from, like, Alibaba. They have, uh, I mean, in China, they have a... Uh, shows to promote the international emerging designers. Oh,
2: okay. So he
3: Im- invited me to present a new collection there. Oh, so good. I talked with him maybe we could do some collaborations to upcycles like the secondhand or polluted and uh, like kimonos and obis from his rental house and also the samples at, at my studio. So it's a very beginning And I start the sustainable design journey.
2: (laughs) Next week, besides continuing on to hear about his life story in fashion, I'm also curious to find out why, of all places to learn about fashion to develop his fashion career, why he chose the Netherlands. So join me next week to find out. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
0: Classic Shorts, Poems, and Stories from Chinese Literature.
4: Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. The poets in the latter Tang Dynasty faced tumultuous times and tragedies, disappointments. And when they got old, when they thought of their friends... Their country, their rulers, their lives. They wrote down their sentiments as poetry for generations after them to read. So today, here are some of the thoughts of the great poets of the Tang dynasty. Du Fu writes about poetic thoughts on ancient sites. The ruler of Shu has his eyes on Wu and progressed as far as the Three Gorges. In the year of his demise, too, he was in the Palace of Eternal Peace. The blue green banners can be imagined on the empty mountain. The Jade Palace is a void in the deserted temple. In the pines of the ancient shrine, aquatic crane's nest. At summer and winter festivals, the comers are village elders. The Marshall Marquis Memorial Shrine is ever nearby. In union, sovereign and minister share the sacrifices together. This is Dufu's Fu's thoughts of old time. It's an ode to a very famous and wise man, Zuga Liang. Zuga's prestige transcends the earth. There is only reverence for his face. Yet his will among the three kingdoms at war was only as one feather against a flaming sky. He was brother of men like Yi and Lu, and in time would have surpassed the greatest of all statesmen. Though he knew there was no hope for the house of Han, yet he wielded his mind for it, yielded his life. But Liu Tangqing writes a work called "On Passing Jia's House in Changsha." Here, where you spent your three years exile to be mourned in due ten thousand years, can I trace your footprints in the autumn grass, or only slanting sunlight through the bleak woods? If even good Emperor Wan was cold-hearted, could you hope that the dull River Shang would understand you? These desolate waters, these taciturn mountains, when you came like me, so far away. This is Liu's work on leaving Guizhang again to Xue and Liu. Dare I, at my age, accept my summons, knowing of the world's ways only wine and song? Over the moon edged river come wild geese from the Tartars, and the thinner the leaves along the Huai, the wider the southern mountains. I ought to be glad to take my old bones back to the capital. But what am I good for in that world with my few white hairs? As bent and decrepit as you are, I am ashamed to thank you when you caution me that I may encounter thunderbolts. Those are precious thoughts from the elder years, from some of Tang Dynasty's greatest poets, Liu Changqing and Du Fu. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts.
1: To News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International.
5: You're listening to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Taiwan is requiring face masks at most indoor public places. The new rule took effect on December 1st. Health officials say it's a preventive measure. As global COVID 19 cases begin to peak in the fall and the winter months.
1: If you're flying to Taiwan anytime after December first, there's some new rules you'll need to know. They're part of the Fall Winter COVID-19 prevention program. Travelers need to present a negative COVID-19 test taken within three days of departure. Face masks are required in eight public places, everywhere from hospitals and clinics to public transportation. Those that don't comply will face a fine of up to 15000 Taiwan dollars. That's more than 500 U.S. dollars. And finally, they're boosting case reporting and specimen collection at hospitals and clinics. It's been more than 200 days since Taiwan last recorded a domestic transmission of COVID-19 and the authorities and people of Taiwan are hoping to keep it that way. Andrew Ryan, RTI News.
5: A sudden drop in temperature could trigger acute coronary syndrome, a disease that includes unstable angina pectoris and acute myocardial infarction. A Taiwanese doctor urges the public to stay warm in the winter time and watch out for symptoms such as chest pains, sweating, and nausea. It's getting colder and colder each day, Recently, a plumber and electrician in his 30s was diagnosed with acute myocardial infarction after complaining of shortness of breath and severe chest pains. Dr. Chen Bonin, a neurologist, says cardiovascular diseases are most likely to happen in winter as they could be triggered by a sudden drop in temperature. Besides weather changes, the disease can also be triggered by anxiety, exercise or after having a big meal. The symptoms include chest tightness, a sense of suppression in the chest, sweating, and nausea. Those with high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and cholesterol levels are particularly at risk. Dr. Chen urged the public to keep warm and seek medical care right away should those symptoms develop. They should also stop exercising immediately. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and more people spending time at home, It is important to know that you are living in a safe and healthy building. For the first time, Taiwan has a building that is not only green, it was awarded the highest global honor for enhancing health and wellness. It is also the first postpartum care center in the
2: world to win the award. In August, a postpartum care center in Taiwan was awarded the Well Platinum 2020 by the International Well-Building Institute, or IWBI. Known as the Oscars in architecture, the IWBI Awards are leading the global movement to transform buildings to help people thrive. The buildings are focused on wellness for people who use them. They integrate medicine, science, and AI to measure the healthiness of a building based on 10 indicators, including air, sunlight and water. The postpartum care center in Taipei, known as Infant6, will be featured in a Discovery Channel documentary that will be shown in Asia on December second. The documentary hopes to show how Taiwan is revolutionizing the way we think about our living environment. There are 4.1 million buildings nationwide that are over 30 years old. That means one in every two buildings is considered old. Perhaps it's time for the government to help with healthier living and renovate old buildings with wellness in mind. Shirley Lin, RTI News. This
1: is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound.
5: Hundred-year traditions are hard to come by in any family. But what happens when it involves an entire town? Puli Township goes vegetarian for one week every 12 years. Why religion?
0: Every 12 years, Puli Township in central Taiwan's Nantou County comes together and goes vegetarian for a week. You won't find any meat and any food stalls, and you won't be able to satisfy your carnivorous cravings by purchasing it at a market, either super or traditional. Why the move away from meat? Religion. This week-long town-wide veggie binge is part of a 100-year tradition. When something is that integrated into a local culture, enterprise can't possibly beat out a 100-year heritage, right? Well, one potsticker vendor in Puli was found dishing out meat during the crucial week. And what do people think? Well, they're pretty forgiving. One woman says there are still students, tourists, and followers of other religions in the area that don't necessarily have to partake in the custom. The township government says that it won't be twisting any arms. If you want to go veg for the week, then go veg. If not, it just asks you to respect your fellow citizen. Leslie Liao, RTI News.
5: This is the season for a Taiwanese delicacy. molly roe is a favorite during the winter months, especially during the upcoming Chinese New Year holiday. However, a warmer winter may hamper yearly production.
0: A torrent of fresh fish falls out the back of a truck like a waterfall. These are mullets, and no, we don't mean the hairdo. Mullets are being harvested this time of year, not for their meat, but for their eggs. That's because cured mullet roe is a favorite among Taiwanese during this time of the year. However, mullet roe producers are biting their nails. That's because Taiwan's Central Weather Bureau has forecasted that the temperature in the coming weeks could break 30 degrees Celsius. Warmer temperatures spell trouble for the mullet roe industry. As one mullet row expert tells us, higher temperatures disrupt the curing process. If warm conditions persist for too long, that could be the end of entire batches of mullet row. A combination of extra competition from imported products and decreasing demand amid the COVID 19 pandemic have already put mullet row producers in a bind. Prices have fallen for two years in a row. Now, Mother Nature is adding another layer of worry. Leslie Liao, RTI News.
5: This is the season for mandarin oranges in Taiwan, but farmers are frowning. That's because a notorious kind of bug has been destroying the orange trees before harvest time. But not to worry, because some farmers have found a way to get rid of the pests without using pesticides.
2: For a long time, Taiwanese fruit farmers have been tormented by white-spotted longhorn beetles. Their larvae are born within the wood of fruit trees, and they destroy the trees from within. The beetles, native to Asia, are responsible for about 5 million U.S. dollars in pre-harvest losses of mandarin oranges each year. The pest can also destroy trees that yield guavas, lychees, carambolas, wax apples, longans, and papayas. In Taiwan, though, farmers no longer need to worry about this pest. After five years of research, some farmers in eastern Taiwan have come up with a way to battle the pests by using air compressors. The compressors inject pressurized air into the tree bark and kill the larvae without the need for chemicals. Farmers say one of these air compressors only costs one thousand U.S. dollars, a small sacrifice to make for a rich orange crop. Shirley Lin, RTI News. And that's
5: all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist for Radio Taiwan International. I'm Paula Chow. Bye-bye.
2: The
1: Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International.
6: So by extension, then, I would want to see some real concrete advancements being made in that area of uh, trade trade and investment um, overall. And again, the cultural dimension is really, really, really important.
7: Hello and welcome to this week's online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. The Ambassador of Belize, Ambassador Diane Hedlock, said as CEO of National Institute of Culture and History in Belize for eight years, her cultural work had to deal with diplomacy. She has a strong development background as she did her master's program in development studies in the Netherlands. Ambassador Diane Hedlock is a firm believer in social justice and is Also a strong advocate for women's rights. How did she get into diplomacy and why did she pursue her education in the Netherlands? What is her goal for 2021? To find out more, we are joined today by the ambassador of Belize, Ambassador Diane Haylock. The third agreement is legal yes, assistance. Yes, leg- uh, legal
6: mutual assistance. Yes. Uh, yeah. Could you
7: also talk about
5: that? Yeah. Um,
6: well, you know, the, the whole, you take, for instance, um, um, the whole drug trade. That is an issue that is of importance to all our countries. And one of the biggest problems you have is when, for instance, you have criminals in your country that are, Criminals in your country that are wanted in York, in, in the other country. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have an agreement, you cannot extradite people. So you might have some of the biggest criminals in your country that that other country needs and, and, and you, you can't extradite them. So they, that agreement will allow us to be able to do things you know um like that um the issue of uh, human trafficking again is really really important for our country i mean i i know that for instance you know taiwan has done exceptionally well in that whole area so what can we learn from taiwan in terms of how taiwan is treating with these very important um areas so that for me um should be uh, able to to go into effect as soon as we enforce the agreement. That should not be as uh, as difficult, you know, as the the others. I would think. Yeah.
7: Yeah. Extradition, I think, is very important uh, yeah. for both countries. Yeah. Ambassador, a little bit about yourself. You were (laughs) the CEO of National (sighs) Institute of Culture and History in Belize for eight years before assuming the post of the ambassador. Now, first of all, how did you get into diplomacy?
6: (laughs) Well, um, I am not a career diplomat. Let's put it that way. Um, But I am... a strong leader in my in my country, and especially in the area of of culture generally. Um, so, by dealing with culture, you inevitably have to deal with diplomacy. You know, for instance, um, national celebrations. You know, in 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 my job as the head of the National Institute of Culture and History, as responsible for. Organizing, you know, and overseeing or national celebrations, and you know you have to deal with uh, people, all these people from 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 um, from different different countries. Plus, I have a very strong um, development background. You know, my I my, I did my masters in um, development studies in in Holland, actually, the, the mm-hmm. Institute of Social Studies in in Holland. So. When you're dealing with development issues, you have to understand, you know, diplomacy. So even though I may not have been formally within the Foreign Service as such, you know, my interactions, you know, with the Foreign Service, both in terms of or, or people who work within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as well as um, different countries that have uh, missions in in, in um in Belize, so for for example, if I could, you know, uh, just divert to mention a, a program that I was doing with the Embassy of um, Taiwan in Belize, which was was something that was near and dear to my heart, was uh, we had a art in primary school, you know, training program because unfortunately in as much as we say that culture is important we still have some ways to go in actually investing resources in cultural development and i see culture as being very central to our development so that our children are entitled to a certain number of hours each week in the whole area of creative and artistic expression. But many of our school children, especially in poorer communities, are not getting that. So... Through our relationship with the Embassy of um, Taiwan in Belize, we were able, there was a Taiwanese uh, artist who was living in Belize, she still is, and so uh, through the embassy, we were able to get the resources to train primary school teachers to be able to train children to do art day to day, you know, and, and some interesting you know artwork came out came out of um out of that project but a lot of that had to do with the the kinds of relationships you know that through being at the helm in the national institute of culture and history i was able to to really to really foster and and get going you know um so uh when my prime minister basically ask me in twenty sixteen. Actually asked me I came I came at the end of August in twenty sixteen and he asked me a few months before. And um I, I think I was hesitant in the beginning because I really liked what I was I was doing. You know, but his argument was that we need a senior person um, to, to represent us in, um, in Taiwan. We, we hold our relationship with Taiwan um, very near and dear to us. and so we want uh, a, a representative of, of your stature as such. and um, so and, and I, I don't think that that it would be something foreign to you based on the experiences that you have had.
1: This is
7: Radio Taiwan International. Did, did you also give it a second thought like Taiwan? Well,
6: no, I didn't have to because I had as I said I have had this relationship, relationship with the and embassy. And also, I had come to Taiwan once before in 2012. Um I had come for the inauguration in the second um inauguration of President Ma so I had come along with our governor general you know who is our mm-hmm. head of state and um I I I loved I loved that ex- experience itself so I didn't have any hesitation to Taiwan per se you know um and and it's such a culturally rich country so that in itself you know was enough of a draw for me to 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 um to want to come i think my hesitation had more to do with the fact that not having been uh, a formal diplomat per se you know that i you know i hesitated because of course in accepting it i wanted to feel my Really comfortable that I would be able to do what was expected, mm. you know, of me. So, and to be honest, Carson, it's been four years and <laughs> I've had no regrets. <laughs> I've had absolutely <laughs> no regrets at all.
7: Ambassador, yeah. what you mentioned earlier about your education, which I think aroused my curiosity as well. Mm. You mentioned that uh, you received your education in Holland, in the Netherlands, in uh, Rotterdam. So, what made you want to pursue your education um, from Belize and then to, to Europe because you obtained your master's degree in women's studies?
6: Exactly. Well, I've worked in the NGO sector for a good number of my, you know, working years. I mean, I'm I'm a firm believer in social justice. Um, it, it, it's in my DNA. And so, I've worked with... Um, NGOs, both in terms of the cultural sector as well as the social sector. So, for example, my 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 bachelor's is again, you know, so it's, a, it's it's a different thing because I I did a bachelor's in in the in the U.S. in um in um it is a speech you know communication degree, and I have a love for theater um and, and i i i, I so you performed <laughs> yeah i i have i have well it's still on paper i still have a theatre company in Belize so i um i directed and performed and ended up doing more directing you know in Belize because of the 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 lack of directors you know as as such so over the years yeah you know i've been involved in the theater movement in in Belize um But I've also been a strong advocate for women's rights. Mm -hmm. And so it was in the early days, you know, um, going back to the the, the 70s when um, the international arena was taking stock of, you know, the the situation Mm -hmm. of women, you know, Mm -hmm. so for for instance, you know, there in the mid 70s, you had the first international um, conference on, on women. So, at that time, we, we we were also engaged at the local level in establishing women's organizations that were not simply organizations that were involved with uh, charity work, but organizations that were addressing the strategic, Areas that were affecting women's advancement, so you know the whole area of gender equality and equity you know was at the forefront of the of the of the movement in, in, in that time, and so I was involved with the Belize Organization for Women and Development, and um, one of my colleagues uh, had gone to Holland you know to participate in this program and um, she basically wanted to make sure that more religions attend and so she put me in touch with at at the time it was the Ford the, the Ford Foundation they had a fellowship program and I was successful in getting a scholarship you know from them to go and do my master's there. And so the overall program is called Development Studies, both with a concentration in, um, in women. women and mm-hmm. development.
7: Mm-hmm. And as an ambassador here in Taiwan, you've been here for about four years. Right now, you've yes. done a lot of achievement. And so what do you hope to do? You know, the, the year 2021 is just around the corner. So what do you hope to achieve uh, in the coming year?
6: Well... Of course, I, I I definitely want to focus on on the economic cooperation agreement and the implementation of that because you know, so many things are signed and they end up collecting dust. Yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. On some place, mm-hmm. so so I think that you know there has to be a concerted, aggressive even effort then towards. The implementation of that, what it means. So, so for example, um, one of the things that we've already identified that we would probably need to do then is to do the educational work with the Taiwanese business sector, so that they understand this 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 agreement and what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. So, to my mind, that work, you know has to has to be done, and so by extension, then I would want to see some real concrete advancements being made in that area mm-hmm. of uh, trade trade and investment um, overall and again, the cultural dimension is really really, really important, for example, um, I am not sure if you the we have the last year, for yes. instance, we we had the, 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 the Garfano right. Collective, mm-hmm. and I was so impressed. I was amazed at the responses from the Taiwanese people. Carson, so the interest is there, but yes. we have to make it happen, mm-hmm. right? So I definitely want to see more take place in terms of that cultural awareness between Belize. And Taiwan. So uh, cultural workers from Belize coming to Taiwan and cultural workers from Taiwan going to Belize, right? So those those are two of the, the important areas that I I would like to see, you know, some real development in if I have the opportunity you <laughs> very know, to do so. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs>
7: and we've been joined in our studio today by the ambassador of Belize, Ambassador Dine Haylock. Ambassador, thank you very much for coming to our studio today.
6: It's been my pleasure, Carson, and I've enjoyed this conversation with you today.
7: And that also wraps up this week's online The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. next see you next week. And then. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at English.RTI.org.tw. Again, that's English.RTI.org.tw. Our 60 minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In Southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.